You are listening to Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. Last month, a scheduled screening of Vaishnavi Sundar's film, But What Was She Wearing, in New York, was abruptly canceled. Vaishnavi was told, a week before the screening, that the event would be canceled because of her transphobic views. This was in reference, she discovered, to some tweets she had posted about gender identity politics, including questioning whether males who identify as transgender should be allowed to compete against and with women in sport, be transferred to female prisons, or use women's change rooms. Vaishnavi had spent three years on the film interviewing women in India about their experiences of sexual harassment and assault in the workplace. She published an article about the ordeal in Spiked earlier this month titled, I was cancelled for my tweets on transgenderism. Vaishnavi is an independent filmmaker, feminist, writer, and women's rights activist from Chennai to Mil Nadu, India. She's the founder of Women Making Films and Lime Soda Films. I spoke with her over the phone on March 23rd, 2020. Here's that interview. Hey, how are you? I'm fine, Megan. How are you? I'm doing good, considering. <laughs> <laughs> How where, are you in India right now? Yes, I am in the south of India, Chennai. What's the uh, coronavirus situation like over there? Uh, in my city, there have been four positive cases so far, um, but that's not ha- a good news. It's just lack of testing. Um, it's, it's India, so everything's slow. I think uh, it's going to hit us pretty soon. Um, but a lot of organizations are encouraging work from home and everything, but. Uh, that's still the upper class, right? Um, there are a lot of people still going out to work, and uh, it's it's pretty bad. Yeah, the situation for working class people is really quite terrifying. Yeah, but it's not as bad as uh, supermarkets going empty and stuff like that. There are some shops still uh, functioning. The prime minister encourages everybody to come outside and clap their hands at 5 p.m. every evening to thank the medical officers. That's by far the only national address that he has given. Come outside at 5 p.m. and clap your hands. Apparently the vibrations will kick corona out. So he hasn't directed people to do social distancing or or anything like that. But he has. Uh, he's encouraged this thing called the Janta curfew, uh, which means people's curfew, where he's encouraging people to stay back, but he hasn't provided any, you know, means um, for those that can't do it, uh, any alternatives like providing financial support or, you know, things like that. That Those things have not been offered. Instead, he's just said, okay, everybody stay at home. That's all, like point blank. Do you think there'll be any... Uh pressure on him to start offering financial support to people who can't work and things like that? The state departments are uh, taking matters in their own hands. Kerala has uh, um, offered to, another southern state has offered to provide uh, 
2000 crores i don't know how much it values in millions but it's quite a lot of money the prime minister sorry the chief minister has set aside for uh, you know uh, rehabilitation purposes and to provide it to people that are in really the bottom rung of the hierarchy but other than that uh, different states have not necessarily come up with financial alternatives um, but they are taking measures to keep people inside homes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah it's strange times and it's uh, scary times that's for sure yeah it's exactly like your article says we we've just been far too arrogant and uh, right now seems like a good example for humility really yeah i feel like the main thing that we should all take away from this like as i said is that you know we just sort of i think we yeah we got too arrogant we thought we were untouchable we thought that we were permanent we thought that we were kind of set and we just we're so comfortable with with all of our our privilege and all the the abundance that exists of course not for everybody but but for many yeah yeah you're absolutely right yeah, yeah. anyway um i wonder um i wonder if you could start by just telling me a little bit about your background and and what brought you to feminism sure um i was born and brought up in a pretty conservative household. Um, that means I had to get my clothes vetted before I step out of the house. Um, if, if they were not uh, modest enough, uh, I had to change or I had to wear a dupatta over myself and things like that. And um, I grew up in an abusive household. My father's a drunk. So I grew up pretty much watching them fight every night. And uh, that's basically been the childhood. And something seemed off from the very beginning, but uh, for the longest period of time, I accepted that to be the way things will be for women. But uh, it wasn't until, I think, um, when I went to college and things started making sense where I started understanding what it is to be a woman in a society, in an unequal society, and started sort of reading a lot of books. And my default position was always uh, liberal feminism because that's just abundant and it's easy to just fall into the whole cult. Um, So in the beginning, I was like, everything is okay. Uh, Whatever you want to do, you should support it and things like that. But then when I was directly affected by, when I say directly, when I witnessed it directly, uh, the horrors of manual scavenging and uh, the sexual violence that people in the bottom of the pyramid go through, uh, this whole thing of uh, doing everything by choice started uh, to not make any sense anymore. And the way uh, certain sections of uh, India, the women from certain sections of India were trafficked, uh, children were trafficked into prostitution and pornography. These qu- kind of questions started uh, making me uh, step away from liberal feminism a lot. And eventually, in a few years ago, I completely disowned this whole liberal feminism's Um, school of thought and kind of submerged myself into reading more of radical feminism books, um, books from Andrew Dworkin, Susan Brown Miller, Jermaine Greer, and so on and so forth. It then started making sense and I found myself to be positioned more appropriately within the radical feminism school of thought than in the liberal feminism. So radical feminism for me uh, and being gender critical is a fairly new uh, endeavor but that is not to say that I don't understand it completely, but um, it's where I am right now, and I feel absolutely comfortable in my skin at the moment. And how did you get into filmmaking? 
<laughs> it's uh, it's by accident really i have always been interested in arts a lot uh, for me formal education seemed extremely daunting so to sit in a classroom and listen to a teacher go on and on just did not work for me so i would make any excuse to step away from the classroom and uh, participate in uh, extracurricular activities and that sort of bug sort of caught on from a very early age and when i when i was working i have always been doing theater parallelly for about 10 years all kinds of uh, all all aspects of theater so that sort of uh, naturally moved me on to being uh, an actor in little films that my friends made and so on and so forth then that sort of gave me an idea of how a films get made and i had just written a script uh, some of my f- filmmaking friends encouraged me why didn't you turn it into a screenplay and then i turned it into a screenplay and they said why don't you make it into a film and it was supposed to be like an experiment and i made that film and since then i have not turned back and this is perhaps the only vocation that i have consistently held on for these many years because uh, as soon as i graduated <clears throat> for the period of about 6 years that i was employed in a in a formal business or employment i shifted about uh, 11 to 12 jobs so this is for me a new record of consistently making films for the past um 6 or 7 years and and most recently you made a film about sexual harassment in the workplace in india what was it that inspired you to focus on that topic um the government of india had passed uh, a legislation um that that claimed to protect women at workplaces against sexual violence um i happened to stumble upon it and a lot of what was said in the act that was passed seemed to make sense in paper but i started wondering how effective it is on ground and this was supposed to be a very very small probably a 10 minute uh, refresher on what the act is so that perhaps like me a lot of people were unaware about it so i wanted to just make like a 10 minute film to make people aware that there is such an act and that women can actually go and seek redress if they ever face sexual harassment that's how it began but the research sort of pulled me in and i realized that uh, the toothless um act on paper had nothing to do with what was happening in reality and i gradually it just kept getting bigger and bigger and the research alone went on for a year and the film took me about 3 years to complete and it was because that there was an act to back things up for women in, uh, with regards to workplace sexual harassment i thought it would be a right place to start because if i were to make a film on sexual ha- violence that women face in india in general i probably will have to keep making the film the entire lifetime so i decided that there is an act it would be useful to question it so that if there were ab- amendments and the policy makers were listening it would make sense for us to put forth our views and i use cinema as a medium to do that how how is sexual harassment in india different than in other parts of the world say north america um sure um if you take uh, north america and compare that with india i think a significant difference would be the split between the organized and the unorganized sector here uh, due to the population and just the position of women in the society uh, a significant number of women work in agriculture and a lot of unorganized labor like domestic work um you know construction laborers and so on and so forth it uh, becomes difficult for a government like ours with a population like ours to sort of streamline 
what constitutes sexual harassment for people belonging to the unorganized sector. So, for example, if a woman is selling some fruits on street, she's technically a working woman and that's her workplace. But any random guy walking past could harass her and go away and the woman would barely have any time to, you know, catch hold of him and then take him to the police and things like that. It is um, not very different in a sense because all women experience sexual harassment, but the extent of it um, in India is far more deviant when it comes to the unorganized sector. And also, you know, the cultural taboo of uh, talking about anything that has happened to us that is sex of sexual nature is so high that people are refusing to talk about it, coming forth with it. That in, uh, indirectly affects the crime statistics because the recorded data of uh, sexual harassment against women is far few in number than the actual reality is. So perhaps the, the number of women that come forth to talk about it is a lot lesser uh, when you take uh, North America, uh, for example, where probably due to the advent of Me Too and Time's Up, a lot more women are coming forth and talking about it. Even when Me Too happened in India, a lot of people were happy to talk about it on their social media anonymously. But when you ask them if they would be willing to press charges, go to police, go to court, all of them flatly refused because of the bureaucracy and the double victimization that happens in the police department also. So that's that. Mm -hmm. Right. And I thought it was interesting because you've been critical of Me Too. Um, you said uh, in an article that, that you wrote that while you consider the India Me Too outrage to be cathartic, it's ultimately pigeonholed in its execution. What did you mean by that? Sure. Uh, the social media Me Too that happened sort of focused solely on the social media users, really. Uh, they never went to the grassroots. They never talked to the women that were in the bottom of the pyramid. They never really addressed the issues that people belonging to a certain caste, religion, or uh, class go through uh, in addition to being a woman. So my film focused on uh, people across the pyramid where I did not isolate. For example, I am considered an upper class, upper caste woman. I did not make a film about people like me alone. I wanted the voice to be uh, of all women across the board and all of us to talk as one unit. What happened with the social media Me Too uh, is that while it was great, a lot of uh, educated elite people came forth and talked about their issues. It was great still, but that did not address the lack of, uh, say, proper education in school about consent or to educate boys about equality and things like that it was just on a superficial layer where it just talked about i am so and so uh, the ceo or a reporter or a journalist in this organization and my boss did this to me but it never really talked about what happens to people belonging to a certain caste dalit for example women face a lot of sexual harassment um in general and in in addition to being uh, employed in an organization just for the fact that they belong to a certain caste so those things were completely away uh, from their radar. And I thought that was kind of skewed when we talk about a movement uh, across the country in total. If mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. What were what were some of the more shocking or upsetting things you heard or or learned in the process of making the film? Sure. I mean, outside of their horror stories, um, I couldn't obviously keep all of them because I shot for a period of two years and uh, the total footage was about 18 hours. So um, 
I had to sort of keep sense of the duration of the film as well. So I had to make a lot of uh, difficult choices of uh, letting go of a lot of footage. I did not want to focus or be a voyeur in terms of the exact incident that happened because that kind of gives people kicks to watch it even more. So I did not want the woman to talk about what exactly happened to her when she said sexual harassment at workplace, but I rather focused on what she did and how she went about the case and so on and so forth. The shocking thing for me while making the film, and it did not happen to me while I was filming them, but it happened during the editing process was these were the people that I uh, interviewed were all educated um, sensitive, uh, aware individuals. But what I realized was the shocking amount of uh, apologia that they had to make while explaining themselves. To give you an example, um, there was this lady who I interviewed who said, uh, we were all in a room. This man came forth to hug me and he said, I love you, baby. And she she had to clarify to me and the people that are watching it that the hug did not happen. That was not necessary at all. The intent is bad enough. But I noticed that pretty much all the women that I interviewed had to make themselves clear that they did as much as they could to avoid being sexually harassed while they don't have to do that at all. That, for me, was the most shocking part because these were all really sensible, uh, progressive women. And I and I broke my heart that they also had to resort to saying something like, well, I did all that I could. Even then, it happened to me. I... I wanted to talk to you in a piece that you wrote for Spiked. um, You said you encountered strong resistance to this film, which, which surprised me because I mean, this is a really universal issue and it is an issue, you know, sexual harassment in the workplace is an issue that liberal feminists have focused on Um, radical feminists too, of course, but this has been a pretty, universal focus for the whole movement regardless of where you stand but you said that you encountered resistance to the film from liberal feminist gatekeepers i wonder in what way you know what happened there um this was a crowdfunded project so i have been raising funds even even while i was doing research and uh, the crowdfunding did not do very well at all because a lot of people were resisting because they were not sure by supporting a film like this, are they supporting um, that sexual harassment happens only to women and not to men or that only men sexually harass women and not the other way and so on and so forth. So people were a little hesitant about supporting a project like this openly. So the crowdfunding project, uh, the crowdfunding got hit by uh, this this sort of uh, confusion. What happened was these liberal feminist gatekeepers who I'd like to call them that, Uh, could have helped me during the crowdfunding stage um, and helped me raise awareness, perhaps uh, done some interview of me, uh, made people aware that such a crowdfunding project is underway and that a film is going to happen and they could have all collectively helped me make this project, but none of them did. While, While that's okay, because there are just way too many problems in India, they were focusing on different things, I would understand that. But what was happening was the kind of issues that they were focusing on even though were so similar, they just simply refused to even as much as retweet my crowdfunding link. It was some sort of a weird ghosting that I experienced where um, 
they would talk to you about other things but the moment you ask them hey why don't you just because they'd have huge following right and i as one individual can only do so much and i was asking them to you know do a shout out or do an interview or ask other people to do an interview or things like that but none of that happened nobody helped whatever little media coverage that i did get i had to really ask them myself and after the film got over i had to send the film requesting people to um review it for me so there was radio silence when it comes to supporting me for the project while crowdfunding it and at the time of screening also when the film got completed and i was requesting for um avenues to screen and i was requesting non-profit organizations that work exclusively with women to come forth and help me screen the film again there was radio silence i don't know what the problem was i can't be sure but that's uh what um happened and uh, I think you'll allude to the very obvious cancellation next and that was also a liberal feminist organization. I have met the person in uh, real life as well when she was here in Chennai. She was very excited about the film. She talked in length about how the film sort of covers uh, all aspects, all demographics alike and uh she encouraged me to screen it in as many places as possible outside of her organization too she said she'd put me in touch with so and so people in new york dc what not but um, i don't know uh, they they i i realized that the liberal feminism on social media are like a big group and everybody is privy to what's happening uh, on social media so if there is somebody who is posting um say questioning men and women sport all of them somehow are privy about this one particular account and they ki- kind of gang up on that and attack it every now and then so turns out that i have been tweeting about uh, men and women sports and uh, men and women's uh, restrooms and uh, you know uh, the amount of videos that twitter happily uh, uh, up- uh, lets users upload about men masturbating in girls bathrooms and things like that i was questioning all of that and i was posting in my own name on twitter this kind of got they got kind of got wind of what's going on and uh, while uh, the person suchitra was happy to screen my film perhaps the others warned her that i am transphobic therefore they should not encourage uh, screening of a film while my film had nothing to do with transgenderism whatsoever so on account of those tweets uh, an organization and a person who was very interested very invested in this uh, topic decided not to um, screen the film at all because i was a transphobic person mhm mhm uh i mean it's pretty pathetic <laughs> not on, not on your part on their part i you know it's just that you know feminism is supposed to be about courage right and fighting fighting back against the status quo fighting back against oppression you know telling the truth standing up in the face of of adversity and and challenges and um even when it's hard and it seems like instead these these kinds of feminists are are really doing the opposite they are and they don't give you an opportunity to explain yourself that email was basically um fuck off bye it that they could have just used those many words and could have explained the situation to me that way so um the problem was that there was lack of dialogue they did not let me explain myself they did not even want to know uh, about those tweets as to why my position politically is that they were just so sure i think if you use a w- word woman 
you're transphobic these days. So I don't think any reasoning was possible at all. And then later I just decided to drop the idea of sending them a reply or to explain myself. Instead, I decided to post an article about it. And the the trouble about um, the whole outrage when I posted the article and the Indian liberal feminist group ganged up on me on Twitter once again, the problem with uh, their ganging up uh, part of it was that the majority of them were conflating um, hijras and eunuchs and intersex people as transgender people. And that was troubling because uh, the problems of intersex people in India, apparently 1.6% of babies are born intersex in India. These people were sort of by default clubbing them as one of their own and accusing me of being um, against intersex people and hijras and eunuchs and so on and so forth, which I, which I'm, I'm not against anybody to begin with. But the, there is problem in that because what they are doing while erasing women, they're also erasing the medical condition of uh, intersex people because they think intersex people also are sort of, uh, you know, plying on the same route as they do uh, in terms of their feelings. While that's not true. I'm interested to learn what's going on with transgenderism and trans activism in India. Um, what's the situation over there? Are there a lot of people identifying as transgender? Um, just this earlier last year, the Transgender People um, Act was passed uh, in the upper house as well. And uh, it was passed in the lower house and there was a lot of protest about uh, it that it shouldn't be passed in the upper house as well. But the reasons for their protests were the following. Um, there is no concept of uh, self-identification uh, in, in this bill, which means uh, you can identify as a transgender person, as the third gender, but if you're a guy and if you feel like a woman, you can't get a free pass of calling yourself a woman in all of your uh, legal documents. And these people were pretty miffed about that. And... They, you have to apply to be a transgender person and there is a limitation of people that are not educated and people, uh, the eunuchs especially, who are resorting to prostitution and uh, uh, begging on streets, etc., who would be alienated in this whole process because it's it's tedious, It's uh, it involves filling up forms and so on. So there was a little bit of protest about that. And, um, you know, if, if somebody gets a transgender ID card and recognizes themselves as the third gender, and if they were to do a, a sexual, uh, sorry, sex reassignment surgery, they then have to get another uh, ID card that says they are now transgender female slash male, depending on what surgery they had. So all these process uh, seems tedious compared to the West. So the Indians were pretty... Um, upset about it they were hoping that you know like in uh, Canada as you know uh, people like Jonathan Yanev who basically just strutting about calling himself a woman people thought perhaps that's possible in India as well um, that wasn't possible and there is now strict rules as to who can call themselves transgender and if there is a sex reassignment surgery there were medical there were going to be medical uh, representatives who are going to verify based on the genital that they have. And all this is a little bit of a dehumanizing experience, I agree. But uh, that is just how the law is because they need to know which 
category they need to be put inside so you can't for example during the corona situation you can't call yourself a woman if you are a biological male and be misdiagnosed and based on certain uh, rudimentary aspects of biological sex so all those things uh, in consideration the indian government basically allowed them to be a third gender but i guess people are pretty miffed about it and they want self id to be without uh, any sex reassignment surgery basically if they feel like a woman they should be given a woman id card that's basically not happening they can now identify themselves as transgender trans woman or trans man but that's about it and and that's like the primary focus of their contention Hmm. Okay, so it's like, so trans identified people sort of count as a third gender, but they aren't actually being counted as literally the opposite sex. Is that true? Is that right? That is right. Yeah. Okay. What's the situation with eunuchs in India? Just for, you know, a lot of people probably aren't aware over here. Sure. The Hijras and the Aravanis, uh, as they go, uh, depending on which community they belong to, is, is a age-old system. Um, back in the day when uh, the Mughals were ruling us, um, the, they, they, they would take away young boys and castrate them and were sent away for the imperialist service. So um, these boys would dress like a woman because they were castrated and they were used as the intermediary. They used to be so powerful, almost right next to the uh, ruler himself, they would be in such close quarters and they get to decide who uh, will carry forward the kingdom as well. So they were that powerful back in the day. And even, um, so they were mostly palace eunuchs. Uh, they did not have, they did not call themselves a woman. They were continu- they, they were always called the hijras or the aravanis. But uh, the trouble became when uh, the, the purpose for which they were being castrated. They did not want women uh, to be in close quarters with the ruler because that would uh, give women the advantage of sexually exploiting them. And they did not want actual men to be in close quarters with the rulers because they would overpower and might, you know, um, rule, uh, win over the king and take away the kingdom. So they wanted to dehumanize someone by castrating them and having them as palace eunuchs so that they are neither woman nor man, but they will completely remain faithful because they're given so much power. Now, the modern-day eunuchs um, don't have all that because we no longer live in an imperialist society, but there is still a concept of a guru and a, and a sishya, as they call it, a guru and chela concept, where there is, a, there is a woman who is also a eunuch, will take on this person who wants to call himself a eunuch as well, and whatever money he makes, and they mostly make money out of begging and prostituting themselves, they have to give a significant portion of it to their mother, as they call it. Um, That's basically what's going on in the hijra community. The trouble is, because they come away from their families uh, at a very young age, and this concept of, uh, you know, there's there's also poverty and illiteracy and so on. So it's it's some sort of a dysphoria where... People get carried away thinking that this is a better life or or what. One can never truly know. But at, at the moment, even in 2020, the position of eunuchs, the hijras and the aravanis are just as pitiable as it was back in the day because uh, there is no representation per se of uh, them because even the 
even them, they are getting uh, hijacked by the trans community saying, oh, we want uh, representation in education and employment and so on. But they're not truly getting into the nuance of uh, them never being educated properly and them living in poverty. So it eventually satiates their woke status on social media, but uh, doesn't really change much in the reality. Yeah, I mean, in the West, trans activists and liberal feminists, third wave feminists, progressive, they use the hijra as, you know, they do the same thing. They they say, oh, you know, um, trans people exist all around the world. It's part of these old cultures. It's been around forever. Um, and, of course, many of us know that that's a misrepresentation and not true, but it's interesting to hear that um, trans activists in India are doing the same thing. Yeah, they're basically parroting all you guys. They're parroting you. They're not reading. Nobody reads in India, I guess. it's uh, or, or at least they don't read the books that they should be. There's a, there, there's a book uh, where this Indian author has written about uh, fem. Uh, making pornography uh, uh, empowering or something like that. Everyone swears by it. Uh, I read through it and it was such a drivel. Uh, I couldn't move past the first chapter. But the moment you talk about these actual issues that women face when it comes to sexual violence, they immediately cut you out. There is no dialogue. It's pretty much the same fights we have online, right? When you ask a trans-identified person what a woman is, they don't really have an answer. They say a woman is who she claims, who, who a woman is anybody who says she's a woman. You know, that's not exactly a definition, but that's what's happening here as well. You question them about certain things, about not appropriating the hijras uh, and the eunuchs because their plight is is pitiable as it is by appropriating their story these people are not doing them any good if anything they should completely disown them from the whole trans community and help, try to make their lives better by perhaps uh, rehabilitating them from prostituting themselves or providing them some you know mediocre or, or you know basic life skills uh, in terms of education probably teach them some skills so that they can, you know, do a business or something like that. Anything, anything uh, other than just sitting on social media and claiming, oh, even hijras are begging on streets. Oh, oh the transgender bill is so horrible. It, it, uh, it does not represent us truly and so on and so forth. What's happening is everybody is on the, on the, on the you know, the tertiary um, level. Nobody is really willing to come dirty their... Uh, uh, their feet and get into the actual reality of the situation it's all fun and games when you have likes and retweets on social media but the real people that are doing the work are probably not even aware that there is something called twitter exists so what do you talk about their contribution and when these people are sitting on their uh, anonymously behind their computer and just just swearing away at people like me it sounds like me it sounds like to me um the hedja, the eunuchs, you know, that's not, that's not an identity or a choice. You know, it sounds like that's something that's, that they really have no choice in the matter. To an extent, yes. But uh, I really wonder what motivates um, people in, 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 in this day and age to choose to want to castrate themselves. And this happens in extremely non- 
uh, it, it is done by the mothers, so to speak. They are not clinically trained. They're not medical professionals. Uh, some of these people have died during the whole sex reassignment surgery, during the castration process. So these uh, social media warriors, social justice warriors, are not doing them any favor by appropriating them as trans people. These people, I wonder the eunuchs, what they see uh, in, in, in a life like that because it is no fun and games because one, they have to beg and uh, prostitute themselves and two, they have to give away a significant amount of money to this, to this guru of theirs and three, they undergo surgeries uh, in such scary places. It, was, it, it sounds like, uh, you know, the abortion that used to happen back in the day in the 70s when it was not considered legal and people used to use some backdoor mechanisms, methods to get their uh, fetus aborted. It sounds pretty much like that. It happens in some dingy area. Some people do it because they've been doing it for so many years. They just know how to do it. It's uh, also similar to the female genital mutilation, the women that do it to the women. It, they, it just happens in such scary, dingy places. And you re you just really think about these people calling themselves a woman because they feel like it and it just does not add up and and that's why their fight seems so superficial to me and I don't want to encourage them by being associated with them in any shape or form sometimes I want to completely renounce the word feminist because they they also call themselves that you know what I'm saying I'm completely disheartened and um repulsed by what's happening in liberal feminism in India at the moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel the same way, and I think lots of women are feeling the same way here. I mean, it's not... I, I'm not particularly attached to the feminist label anymore. I'm not particularly attached to any label. But, you know, part of that is that when you tell people that you're a feminist, nobody knows what that means. And if they don't know very much about feminism, they'll just have seen what's going on on social media and online, which really is a joke, and most of it is not feminism at all. So what's the point in announcing that you're a feminist if you tell someone that and they think, oh, that must mean that you believe this, this, and this, when in fact you believe the opposite? That is true. That is true. That's been my case in a lot of places, and I, that sort of begins my uh, endeavor to peak trance a lot of people when I, when somebody mis, mis, uh, confuses me for a liberal feminist. So I take that as an opportunity if I'm in the mood for it, uh, depending on which side of the bed I woke up from that morning. I try and educate them about uh, my politics. And if they see sense in it, um, they uh, support me in whatever way they can, uh, at least by not pandering to what's considered as feminism on social media at the moment. These are people... Um, Megan, the people that I interviewed in the film, these are people that don't have social media accounts truly. And the kind of work that they manage to do in rehabilitating women that do manual scavenging and the kind of sexual violence they face from their, uh, you know, supervisors and the women in construction sites that uh, where the supervisors would take the woman away and promise them um, uh, marriage and uh, childcare and rape them. And when they are pregnant, they cast them away claiming that they belong to a lower caste and uh, she must be deluded to think the supervisor would marry her and things like that. These are women that fight these good fights by taking those men to courts and punishing them, making them pay some fine or whatever. This is a true story because that woman who was raped in the construction site has given birth to a child and she went to the court holding that child uh, to 
persecute that man and she lives with the child and continues to do the contract labor in a construction site the child is growing along with her uh, she never married um, and these people that i'm talking about the actual warriors on ground continue to support her in whatever way they can they raise funds for her they try and educate the child these are the real people that we should be following not the idiots that you know use some deepak chopra word generator and post about what kind of sexuality they woke up that morning with you know that's not what feminism is it's it's bullshit mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. are there people in india who are supporting you you know are there people in india who you're in touch with who share your politics or do you feel pretty isolated for the most part uh, they don't come in this this complete package <laughs> there are some people who believe that pornography is harmful and there are some people who believe prostitution uh need not necessarily be work uh, and, and and that they when they claim sex work is work they are completely isolating people that are trafficked uh, and people that are there without their consent so some of them see some sense in parts of my politics but not in its entirety because some sometimes you you like a fool you go talk to them and they see sense in say pornography being harmful and then you slowly start talking to them about gender ideology that completely throws them off so you have to be really really careful because it is associations like this that are very important because you need people to make any amount of change there's only so much a one one person can do so when i associate myself somebody i have to be very very careful what they are okay with what they are not sometimes at the moment because the situation is as uh, horrible i have to then pick and choose organizations and work with them on a particular cause and then not at all open my mouth about something else that's how it's going on but there are some indian women and i'm gradually bringing them together thanks to you know social media sites like spinster where a lot of indian women have uh, signed up as well and i have sort of completely created a little haven for us where there are a few indian radical feminists and we talk about certain situation that are happening in india they can't all be openly um talking about it with their identity because they're all working somewhere everybody's afraid of cancellation but there is this little haven uh, where i can go and fall back on in case the real world gets horrifying for me mm-hmm. no, i'm glad to hear that i'm glad to hear there's a uh, women from from india who are on spinster that's cool um i i wonder since you've been canceled <laughs> How how can people see your film will you be screening it anywhere Um well at the moment I'm open to um screening it in people's living rooms uh, a small community of people that get together virtually now because coronavirus uh, is on people are kind of isolated but if they want to do a virtual watching they can do that I have put the film uh online and i have kept like a basic donation amount because that would help me then screen it in different places where i have to sometimes pull in my own money to do screenings basically in these underprivileged areas where um they don't have the resources and but i want to make the change so i then spend my own money set up a projector get a sound system and make the screenings possible so it, their donations would help me take care of that and it will also help me make continue to make films like this and continue to voice my opinion on issues that actually uh, affect um the sex based rights of women so there is a little bit of donation but then if it is an organization or a library or an ngo that wants to screen it i'm more than willing to do a q and a after 
or in any shape or form, if, if I can work with them, I'm, you know, open to all ideas. But the film is online. There is a very basic donation amount, uh, which I, I wish I would ju- I could just post it online without any fee for anybody to watch. But, you know, situations are dire right now. So I had to resort to that. But but it's not a huge amount. And I'm sure a lot of people uh, will be interested in watching it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's totally fair. It costs a lot of money and it takes a lot of time to make a film and people know that. And, and I think that people will want to support your work, especially hearing your story and your politics and, and what you've been dealing with. Um, and so that's available for people to watch on your website? Uh, there's a link on my website, but it is at the moment available in uh, uh, in, in, a, in a streaming uh, um, platform called Gumroad, and the domain—I mean, the hyperlink can be attached to the uh, to the uh, podcast. I hope, but uh, it's basically Gumroad.com/slash/bwwsw. That's the acronym for. But what was she wearing? Okay, great. Yeah, and I'll link to it in the show notes um, and and to your website and things like that as well. So I, thank you so much for talking with me today. It was really interesting to hear from you. I mean, it's it's just so interesting to me to hear how politics, you know, how, how what's going on over there really mirrors what's going on in North America, in the UK. Um, it's just, I mean, it's, it's, depressing and disappointing but it's also interesting to see that this is like a fairly global phenomenon yep people are people (laughs) (laughs) true um okay great again it was really great to talk to you thank you so much for your time thank you so much for your work thank you for your courage i'm really um i'm really glad to to hear that you're speaking out and even though you're getting this terrible backlash and you've been blackballed and abandoned you know somebody has to do it so that other women feel that they can do it also so good for you (laughs) thank you thank you megan thank you so much for uh you know taking me on and doing this it means a lot to me i am a big fan of all that you do oh thank you so much you just heard an interview with vaishnadi sundar an independent filmmaker, feminist, writer, and women's rights activist from India. She is currently conducting research for a new film about the effect of microfinance on women. To watch But What Was She Wearing, visit gumroad, G-U-M-R-O-A-D, dot com, slash V-A-I-S-H-A-X. To learn more about her work, you can visit limesodafilms.com, wmfindia.com and you can find her on Twitter at V-A-I-S-H-A-X That's all the time we have for today. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com Tweet at us at feministcurrent or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com We are hosted by Libsyn And you can subscribe to the Feminist Current Podcast anywhere you like to listen. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Spotify, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Feminist Current is produced and hosted by myself, Megan Murphy, out of Vancouver, BC. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.